Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. Today, we're taking a look at the 1971 book, De-Schooling Society by Ivan Illich. Brennan O'Leary, my co-host, has mentioned this book, has discussed it many times over the years with me. To position this in terms of our podcast, we're starting a deep dive into a look at what we are calling progressive schooling. If you're a fan of uh, either Spiral Dynamics or the work of Frederick Leloux, this would be the green stage of development. And we're in particular looking for ideas and examples that fully embody this progressive approach to education, which in terms of a student-teacher relationship or system is one that involves around putting the students first, their interests, their authentic actions, and essentially the school and the teacher acting as an extension of a counselor to help people define what is important to them and engage with the world in meaningful ways. And it seems mind-blowing to me that in 1971, Ivan Illich had already outlined like almost everything that has still yet to come to fruition, and even the most idealistic people in 2022 are trying to make happen. Where shall we begin? A little of your, your background with this book, or shall we get into Ivan Illich just crapping on schools right away? This book and uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Raffieri, which I go on about all the time, but don't know that well. Read them a couple of times over the last 20 years, and there's some key points that have stuck with me. It was great to reread it and really get some more details and flesh out like what I'd forgotten. And now with the hindsight of like, you know, 15 odd years of, of school teaching under my belt, it was great to re- revisit these ideas that um, have been very inspirational and put them in the context of what we've been talking about, the, the three types of school, and this clearly... You know, we try to be objective, but um, my my heart lies with the progressive ideas. We we see the value in the traditional and the mainstream, but it's it's the progressive that speaks to me of the freedom of the individual, the um, the becoming becoming that self actualized or that person or following uh, Con- whatever consciously creating are. who you are, consciously creating your life, consenting to the choices you're making within systems. Yeah, all that kind of good stuff that we feel and wish was at the core of education. Um, Illich just craps all over school for this entire book. Um, When I first read it, I I didn't approach it, I think, with a very critical mind. It was like, yeah, you got it. You're 100%. This time reading it, I think I'm a bit more like, oh, okay. I can see the hyperbolic nature of some phrases. Um, This one stood out particularly. I just put it right at the top of my notes. Instruction smothers the horizon of their imaginations. It's beautiful, but it's like, there's a few points in it where last time I read it, I was like, yeah, and this time I'm like, really, Ivan? <laughs> that seems a bit much. Um, so yeah, uh, but- I think if we run this through our model, essentially Illich is saying there is no redeeming value whatsoever from a mainstream or traditional approach to education. He's essentially okay. advocating in our in our terminology Only progressive education has the potential to serve individuals and society in a positive way. Maybe he gets it. He gets to a solution that arguably is a bit more nuanced than that. But um, he is 
he is definitely way into the progressive end. And he's his thing was institutions. He was a Catholic priest, and he railed against the institution of church. Your church is not salvation. And they, then he applied that to school. You know, school and teaching is not learning. And that's basically where he starts. At. And then after this book, he goes on to try and take down the medical institutions and how they um, pathologize things that, that we could approach differently in terms of thinking about how health. But in this book, he, he really guns for school in particular. Uh, he's a big fan of education. He is not a big fan of school. So maybe yeah, we can dig let, into that. Let's slow down there because we've already said in Illich's word, school is not learning and he is a fan of education. So help me tease apart his definitions for those three. Well, that beautifully segues into the uh, first part of uh, the book where he does kind of set out, you know, he says we confuse teaching with learning. We confuse church with salvation. We confuse the advancement through grades as education. Basically, all our values have become institutionalized. We don't trust our own understanding of education or learning anymore. And even to propose an idea like de-schooling sounds like treason. It sounds like you're way out on the edge that you are that you don't care you know it's basically the one of the worst things you could say and then he goes on to set out about you know his belief so that most learning happens casually uh, most learning that we experience the most meaningful learning is not a result of programmed instruction um he cites paolo friuri as someone who would not never conduct his lessons based on anything pre-selected. It would all come from what the people in his classes brought. So there is no curriculum, no objectives other than what is the needs that my students are presenting right now. And, and things like, you know, how much this is based on actual research in the 19, late 1960s, but, you know, teenagers who are inspired and given the opportunity, will be better than any teacher introducing concepts to their peers. You know, there's a lot of research that does say that peer assessment and peer learning is very valuable. Um, so that all of those kind of things are just in his very first thoughts on education within this book. Yeah, and the one point that I found interesting was his discussion of curriculum and this idea that curriculum creates this like artificial starting point for the conversation. It's like the institution as school has this curriculum, which says, this is what you have to do while spending your time at school. And it's the teacher's job to carry out the curriculum. And what's on that curriculum not only creates the starting point, but the context that all schooling will have. And essentially saying that it's this curriculum, it's this document over, like you were just laying out, the needs of the students and what's actually coming up in their own lives. And that was an extension of that institutionalism. Yeah, absolutely. And he picks those thoughts apart through the book. Um, so, yeah, he he kind of, 
he's not a romantic in the sense he acknowledges that you can't go back to the village. We don't live in a village anymore. Traditional life was a lot more like a, a set of concentric circles, whereas the modern world is so much more interconnected and complex. Um, but he does harken back to the, the, the traditional um, life where education was lifelong and it wasn't planned. You, your education came from your life. And we do sometimes come across progressive educators who look back with a very romantic notion to past and say, well, look at how education was integrated into real life. I mean, but there's obviously some truth in there, but he, he, pulls out a hyperbolic phrase again of uh, men shield themselves behind certificates gained in school for their courage. And uh, basically he says that, you know, school is a form of market manipulation with certificates being kind of how you trade in it, which is, yeah, kind of what we've said as well in our discussions on um, credentialism in, in mainstream school in that you get your certificate and that's really you don't have to prove at any point what you know. You just have to show that you have this piece of paper. Of course, that's not really how it works, but there's a, there's a great deal of truth in uh, the credentialist kind of nature of school. Yeah, and he basically sets out that school has a monopoly. School basically you know, has a monopoly on education. It's the only place where education counts. And he sets out quite early that he doesn't think there should be any obstacle at any time in anyone's life uh, from them getting publicly funded education in any, basically any skill they want. So he's all for education that has been de-schooled, decentralized. And he does get into that in, in the second half of his book. Going back to that idea of the, the religious world, he said something to the effect of like in religion, and we've separated the sacred and the profane. And in the same way in school, we've created like, well, the only education that's valuable is what happens in school. And anything that happens outside is sort of the profane. It's it's not important. It's probably not helpful and could have probably been done better in school anyways. That's a yeah. belief that we've developed in this kind of hypnosis of school. Yeah. And he gets into that in the chapters on the ritual of school and the school, the game is school. Once you bought into it, that's really all that matters. And that's the that's the actual purpose of school to get you buy to buy into school. I mean, again, looking at it now, um, I don't buy that quite as much as I did 20 years ago. But when we get to it and, and he kind of teases that apart, we can definitely critique that view. But he, he does start by saying the function of school is basically indoctrination and social selection. And, and you've talked about this funnel idea. I don't, you didn't approach it from that same kind of bleak kind of approach that Illich did. Where, you know, the framework of school has a syntactic structure of a funnel for teaching packages. So basically school is that school feeds you with packages of information. There's an obligatory curriculum. Your full-time attendance is mandatory and, um, the school acts like a funnel uh, for society. Explain your funnel idea for people who have not listened to the first 95 episodes, <laughs> and then explain why your funnel idea is not as bad as Illich's. 
What is my funnel idea? The conveyor belt piece of it or the sorting funnel? Which the one are we talking about? The idea that each st stage of school kind of filters people out and, you know, basically gets narrow and narrow towards the top with fewer people making it to the higher echelons of education. And that's, it's basically seen as success. The higher you go up there, it, it, you've been more successful at the game of school. And if you get spat out early on, you basically failed at school and that's bad. Maybe not necessarily failed at school, but that's the step of the funnel that you've gotten off at. And it opens up any step of the funnel, gives you options, but the higher you go, the more specialized options are open to you. And is my funnel neutral? Yeah, it's a bit of everything. It in theory is neutral, but of course, theory versus real world experience is very different. Of course, there are ways you can hack the funnel and get ahead when you shouldn't. And of course, there are unfortunate reasons why some people may not have access to parts of the funnel, all these kinds of things. But yeah, I guess another way to think of it is like some mycelium type thing or like tree branches. You start off at the trunk and everyone's kind of all together. And then the higher up you go, the smaller the branches get until eventually, you know, you're kind of hitting up against individual leaves. So it's like how high or where in the tree do you want to get? Which is kind of been, could be interpreted as a positive mainstream interpretation of the filtration system, whereas Illich is like, not that. He yeah. literally says there is shame in the dropout and half the people in the world have not no school and they have not yet learned the message that, that they should have school. <laughs> the message that school teaches people that you should have school. And uh, so he's here... Um, he talks about the concept of childhood that is a is a bourgeois and European concept in the sense that our mainstream conception of childhood. Now, traditionally, you watch the sheep until you're useful and then you till the soil with your family. Again, it's a romantic notion and there was a bit more to life over the last thousand years than that. Um, but now he sees childhood as a conflict between the growing self-awareness and these roles imposed by society that doesn't that that in his eyes doesn't really understand what childhood is. So it's kind of it's like false childhood. The one thing I found interesting there was even just his line about something like, and even your clothes, you just wore smaller versions of your father's clothing. I thought that was a really poetic way of saying it. Like, no, no, there wasn't this demarcation of like, oh, there's this childhood phase. And then you leave childhood into this adulthood, much rather we've created this idea of childhood that I guess to some degree, since the Prussian model is actually serving the reinforcing of school, like, oh no, children need to be in school. They can't be working. Now, of course, this is not me coming to defend child labor in mills or factories or things like this, but rather just this idea that we, according to Illich, Historically, we didn't create this giant divide where a child is not yet ready to be in society and requires schooling to be ready, but rather in earlier days, if I understood him correctly, it was sort of like, no, you're just, you're around and the more useful you become, the more you will take on and you're already in this thing with us. Which is, which is really in line with the master and apprentice or the expert and apprentice model that we discussed. And, even the artisan. And even, even the artisan, yes. <laughs> what a great word. The, the medieval guild model and the idea that you served a useful function, and before that you didn't really have much to do, and 
you know, you kind of did what you could. And that's preschool. So the fact is that not preschool, but preschool. This is the idea that uh, before school. Uh, yeah, everything we talk about in terms of even mainstream traditional progressive, they're all versions of a mainstream school because traditional society did not have school. And if you follow Illich's thought process or any sort of logic in the way education might be going into um, more online and, and multiple, you know, you can take courses whenever you like in any kind of area and it's, it's, it is becoming slightly decentralized in that sense. Um, it's only the mainstream that actually has this school. You know, mainstream meaning, you know, from the time of the Prussian model to the standardized kind of curriculum based uh, model we've got right now. And he, he basically says that there's a cognitive dissonance. We, that's not really how children naturally should live. And he doesn't really use that terms, but it makes me think of Rousseau's kind of approach to progressivism. Um, which is stay out of the way. The kids know what she should do. Whereas someone like Dewey, which he kind of has a bit of a go at later, who for most people, John Dewey is kind of the progressive educator, but he does not go far enough for Illich. And uh, he got, uh, you know, he basically says that, you know, that romantic Rousseau nature, like get out of their way. Even someone like Dewey who's saying, no, you got to support the child. He's like, no, that, that dude doesn't get it. You got to get out of the way and let them let them live and be. If there were no age-specific and obligatory learning institutions, childhood would go out of production and the youths of rich nations would be liberated from their destructive men. Uh, basically, yes, that's what he's saying. We're, we're getting in the way and school and institutions are getting in the way of our youth becoming actual, fully self-realized humans. Yeah, and you and I privately, off microphone, have discussed this idea. Underlying Illich's ideas here is this idea that people are fundamentally good and that essentially any kind of system imposed on the individual is either compromising, damaging, tainting the degree to which that individual can express their good. So way down in the roots here, there's this idea that, no, no, the true education is when the individual has complete agency because anything coming from any kind of system or larger structure is an imposition and can only have nefarious or negative impacts, at least from Illich's take, I, I assume. Yeah, sort of. And then what you're describing there really is an anarchism, anarchism as a political kind of mindset. But Illich doesn't really want to get rid of the state so much. He doesn't seem, he doesn't seem to be in this book. He's not, he's saying get rid of schools and institutions, but I'm sure if you pushed him, I don't know what he's writing got later, but I don't know. I don't know if he ever talked about actually dismantling this state apparatus. When he talks about institutions, he talks about not wanting institutions to have more than just the, the real basic regulations needed so that there, there isn't abuse. So he's definitely aligned with the ideas of anarchism, um, but he, I don't think he goes quite uh, as far as some of those characters. But yeah, well, I think that's one of my main critiques of the 
book, reading it back, is that he doesn't seem to bring dig too much into that stuff that's underlying. Uh, did he not know that stuff? Had he not uh, gone into that side of stuff enough himself? Because all that postmodern uh, kind of thought was in the air at that time. So this wouldn't have been um, thinkers like Jacques Derrida and mm. the, the likes. You know, they they wouldn't have been. Um, I'm sure he would have known those ideas, but he doesn't seem to touch on much of that. He doesn't really touch on the stuff that's below the surface. Um, maybe he just wanted to keep this book quite short, and so they're making it 500 pages and exploring the deeper substrata of the idea. He just kind of it takes it as a given that people are good and uh, we kind of just need to get out of their way and support them. So already, if you come at it from any, without that perspective, everything this book is very suspect and he doesn't do a lot to defend that thing. That's one of the criticisms is like, if you're on board with it, like I was first time I read it, yeah, this is the greatest. Like, but now I was a cynical old man. I'm like, hmm, you're not really making a very strong case for any of this stuff. You're just saying schools are bad, right? Because they stop you doing the stuff you need to do to be the best you can. I remember like I didn't actually sit down and read this. I listened to an audio book and I remember thinking, oh, I'll listen to this while I'm making some food and I'll take some notes while I'm ready for Brennan's chat. And just 15 minutes in, he's coming hot and heavy though. This is also isn't some airy fairy circling back saying the same thing over and over again. I found like after two minutes in, I was like, oh, crap, I almost need to write every word of this down because this is dense. This isn't like some modern garbage book that has one idea that they managed to spread across several hundred pages. It's like paragraph by paragraph of this could stand alone as its own essay. So while we can knock him on that kind of core fundamental philosophical idea, his presentation in this is incredibly dense. There are four revolutionary ideas in this book that I don't think I've really come across anywhere else. The first one, one that we uh, kind of uh, reached in a slightly different version by ourselves, the three types of teacher-pupil relationship, get into that one. But then he talks about the four myths of school, which is absolutely crazy how how true and deep that kind of is, that he, that he kind of talks about in in maybe five pages <laughs> and then his solution which we'll get to in the second part of this which is again revolutionary for 71 but let's touch on the first idea of this which is the three types of teacher or the three types of relationships so he basically says the idea of the professional teacher is sacred that is a sacred part of school the school ritual and the teacher can be either a custodian a preacher or a therapist. Now we say the teacher can be like a master or expert. We, or the teacher can be the coach style, and the teacher can be the counselor. And in this um, one, the preacher matches somewhat to the master in the sense that it's a moral leading. It's duty bound. It's what we call the traditional kind of duty mindset. And the custodian is the more um, mainstream coach style guiding someone through the curriculum and the therapist is more like the counselor so basically says that the the preacher the teacher is the moralist he um subsidized he um he stands in for god and for the state and for the parents when they're not around 
Uh, and his job is to indoctrinate people about what is right and wrong and ensure that all children feel themselves as children of the state. Now, that is a pretty damning <laughs> takedown of traditional teaching. Yeah, and I, again, we started this conversation by talking about how Illich is coming rather black and white with all of this stuff. I think our version of the expert, the master and the master-apprentice relationship this well, there's two things going on here. One is that nature of the relationship, but then also you and I we've discussed this idea of the um, three like fundamental reasons for school: the idea of work preparation, the idea of culturation, becoming part of society, and part of self actualization. And this obviously, when he's discussing the preacher or in our model, the sort of expert master, there is this idea of like the extra emphasis on that societal belonging piece. And, you know, if we're using integral terminology, terminology, that kind of lower left, the communities and the culture, this idea that school can be used to indoctrinate or to propagate a sort of like shared cultural belief. And it's up to the teacher to kind of keep course correcting you anytime you're not in alignment with the, the larger overall social values. But that idea of children seeing themselves as part of the state I wouldn't say that children would see themselves as that. Rather, it's just known that they are. You know, it's the water you're swimming in type of thing. Like I'm here to say, I think all of these things are bundled as a negative expression. He's being rather black and white. This could only be bad. And I think in our model, we would say, yeah, for sure. He's describing the warnings or the potential worst side of this type of relationship. But that more master, expert side of things who is maybe a more self-actualized person, which is something Illich you know, recommends, they can also stand in for God or the state or the parents when not around and have, I think, a similar kind of influence. You know, I think influence itself is neither good or bad. I, I would say there are some better and some worse influences um to be around in school illich would say i mean i'm a fool but that would be my Probably criticism say nicely. here i don't yeah. know i don't know I, if he was a feisty character he's an austrian i don't know whether they're they're laid-back types right more more given the laid-back stereotype from the austrians maybe. i know maybe maybe but um but it, it does match to our but i'd say yeah we're basically saying there, there might be some good in, in traditional society it's not it's not all bad but hey the guy's got a book to sell <laughs> he's got a point to make he's not going to give the other team any points so then he turns to the what we've come to know as the mainstream which is the custodian Mobeski. he's a master of ceremony and his job is just to guide the pupils through this labyrinth of rituals that make up school all of the observance in a way it is a little bit more like this traditional kind of thing it's not quite what we're describing as, as the coach kind of but but it, it, a lot of it is so basically he says that beyond the rules and how you you navigate the ritual of school you know he this person's job is at best he can set you up um they can set you up for the acquisition of some skills probably not going to get great or world-class at anything but you you'll have some skills 
Um, no real profound learning, but I'll drill you in some basic routines and get your skills up. So it's not quite the mainstream coach model where we've, but again, I guess it's the negative version because we're saying, well, a coach can be good as well. They could actually like, could train you to be a world-class something. Um, but but more or less, this is the guide that guides you through school. Uh, they're going to coach you through school. And I'm I'm kind of wondering here, just looking at it now, if this custodian preacher therapist, as Illich describes it, isn't just more of a critique of what you and I would call the traditional or expert teacher, sort of the worst version of it. To me, I know we haven't got to the therapist yet. We'll get to that in a second. But to me, this is, you know, A, it was written in 1971. This is way ahead of its time because everything he's still talking about is essentially still relevant in 2022. But to me, there have been more iterations since the writing of this that make up more of what education looks like today that to me are not quite as accurately addressed here. Although, again, Illich would probably come in and say I've misinterpreted him. We should see what he's up to and just get him on the show and and ask him ourselves. But I can hear, I can hear him right now. I think he's just spinning in his grave, <laughs> screaming, screaming from the sky. He's well, too full. Let's misinterpreting my words. Let's talk about the therapist then and see if see if my idea holds weight or not. So the therapist basically says that the teachers, therapists are organ- authorized to dig into the personal life of pupils to help them grow as a person, which sounds quite nicer than the word dig, which is which is not the best way to put it. But you could say this is the bit where he's at least being a little bit more balanced. Okay, this teacher is able to get in, involved with the personal lives of the person to help them grow as a person. However, he quickly says, it doesn't actually exist. It's always done by the other two, the custodian, the preacher kind of pretending to be therapists and basically just manipulating this person. So he's kind of suggesting that if there was an actual therapist and what we're describing is counselor progressive style person it might he doesn't really say what he thinks but it, it might be okay it maybe it's good and he later on he kind of dances around and there might be some role for some form of teacher who does some kind of thing and that's good um helping people to actualize what they need like um but um yeah, he basically says, well, but but that doesn't happen anyway because it's always done by the other two, which I think does feed into what you're saying. He's basically all, like at that point in 71, maybe there wasn't really a defined mainstream teacher and a defined progressive teacher. And so basically it's all filtered through his vision of the schoolmaster. Yeah, and he, in another way, he's kind of the the antithesis of the reinventing education model, because our kind of big idea is, well, if you take these three types of teachers, our wording, the expert, the coach, and uh, he's using therapist, but we've been using counselor to describe the third type of teacher in our model. We're kind of saying, you know, if, if done well, all three together, my goodness, that is a great, beautiful thing when you can flexibly move between being a, a master expert and a coach and uh, and a counselor, but essentially he's saying the worst kind of teacher is the teacher who combines these three values 
because they're contributing like more exponentially to warping the child than any one of them on their own. The triple symbol of authorities, he calls them. He cannot envision how these three roles could be positive. He's so down on school, so down on the institution of school. Cannot see how these things. So obviously three of them is the worst. And yeah, it's probably, it's three, it's it's cubed, the damage. It's not, it's not just tripled. Um, so much so that this triple symbol of authority means that you cannot even question the notion of school or any kind of predetermined imposed learning. That's what you walk away from school with an absolute inability to even question the need for school. Ah, uh, nuts. He's right. Because I'm trying to defend school. Nuts. Well, that's his. That's all, that's the trick. Is he basically says like you you don't get this because if you even defend school in the slightest, you can never get it. Only I can get it because I'll never defend school. So it's like black and white thing, isn't it? It's like, it's like if you even slightly defend school in the, in the slightest, they've got you. They've got you, and it's game over. It says classroom attendance removes children from the everyday world, plunges them into this this uh, environment, this incarcerated environment for many years. And another, uh, it comes up with another idea that you've talked about before, but again, your idea was a lot more positive. Schoolroom as a magic womb where the, the child lives and grows and then eventually is spat out. He'd not his turn, that's not his term, but <laughs> sent out into the adult world at the end of their school days. Yeah, I've used incubator. I'd argue the womb sounds even nicer than incubator. But even wombs <laughs> well, are tainted according to him. <laughs> there is nothing good in the universe if it has a stench of school on it. What tell us about your incubator idea and why it's better than his magic womb? I'll even give Illich a tiny bit of credit here. If he's saying any defensive school, you're kind of misguided. But I guess the idea of the incubator here is the idea of like the practice ground for quote unquote, the real thing, the quote unquote, real world. And the idea that school as a socio-cultural incubator gives you sort of like a starter pack, which I realize Illich is going to crap on that idea. But this idea of the incubator being- Yes, because who designed that starter pack, Rob? Bad people, the institutions. But the idea that and again, this is a belief in school. I'm willing to step back from it for a moment. But the idea that you're being handed this starter pack from school and you're better off having had it than not. And school is this incubator period where we can grow positive, but sure, also negative pieces and aspects of society within this space. And the idea that I'm, of course, going to come in and say, of course, this is not perfect. Of course, it can be done poorly. It does harm, but I'm arguing that when done well, more good than harm comes out of it. So this is why this is such a fun book to to dig into because he's just so adamant that everything is bad about it. It's like uh, it's almost comedic in the sense that he gives doesn't give it any nothing. There's no way this magic womb where you're incarcerated and you're indoctrinated. And Rob's like, mm, could you learn some good social skills there? Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> to understand what it means to de-school society and not just reform 
the educational establishment. Yeah. That is the key. Yeah. Even Dewey, even the most progressive educators to a large extent, most of the progressive educators worth thinking about are talking about are talking about reforming establishments of education. He's talking about getting rid of the concept of school. And uh, he does have an idea. He's not just flapping around. He's, but uh, he says that we got to look at the hidden curriculum. You've got to look at the ceremonial nature of school. The, the curriculum that basically is that you are initiated into a growth-oriented consumer society. Um, that's the job of school. And everything else is in service of that, of you it basically being initiated into the society. And then he goes on to talk about one of his key ideas, the ritualization of progress, a.k.a. the myths of school. I understand the desire to critique that kind of Western growing capitalist growth, always be growing mindset. Sure, you can have critiques about that. But I would be curious if you took any previous cultural iterations of how societies organize themselves, if he would be just as down on the institutions that previously previously reinforced those ways of living. Well, that's the criticism of any of the extreme positions, isn't it? So if you hear um, someone who's romanticizing the past but only cherry picking certain areas of the past which is pretty much the only way you can really romanticize the past it's like oh it was great uh, in in the year of our lord something something oh great for who well um, there's very specific fraction very, if we of look through people this prism. on a few hours of the day when they'd be engaged in this activity. And, and and that, and if you apply that lens to today, that wouldn't hold. Oh no, there's no lens that's good today. So it's that kind of, it's such a ridiculous standpoint, right? So it's like, uh, no, I don't think he, he could possibly have, but we don't know because he didn't write about it. He was so busy uh, crapping all over school that we never got to hear what he thought about the Flintstones. <laughs> so basically, he says that the, the, the threefold functions of school in this ritual kind of idea is that it is a repository of society's myths. So we have the myths of our capitalist society that we need to indoctrinate the youth into. Um, so shared then, beliefs. Shared deep beliefs, wrong beliefs in his ideas, but yes, yeah, shared beliefs. Um, they are then institutionalized so any contradictions or problems within those beliefs, they're kind of pushed to the side because the institution frames that in such a way that you can't really argue with it. So basically it takes all, it takes the viewpoint of, of consumer capitalist society and it basically says, but everything's good about it. You can't really critique it. Um, don't look in those corners over there. We're going to guide you through this in such a way that you, you will just accept this and and in a kind of related one, it basically says that the, the rituals of school kind of mean that you don't really look at reality too strongly. You just accept the, the myth of uh, what you're told about how society is. I mean, it's a pretty standard 
kind of progressive view on society of uh, you know if you get a few steps further down the line you, you're shouting sheeple from, from the top of a building right so um however he follows up with some pretty solid critiques of of the ritual of school let's let's assume let's give him let's let's give him a few minutes he he's seen that school is full of bs and it's it's a bunch of rituals to get you to buy into society so the first one we, we need, need school, school to, learn. to learn we need, need school, school to, to learn. learn instruction produces learning schools produce demand for schooling and this is a key point the self-taught person is discredited all non-professional activity or learning is rendered suspect uh, only school can teach you things and the more you spend time in school the better the more you're learning so that's his first myth any deficits can only be compensated for with more schooling and again we already use that term the monopoly we need schools to learn because schools have the monopoly on where learning happens and how do we know that well we know deep down the learning comes from instruction it has to come from someone else. If it's not coming from someone else, it's not learning. And thus, the self-taught person did not actually learn because they didn't receive the necessary instruction. You can't teach yourself something. Sure, maybe you can. Maybe. But it's going to be subpar. It's not nearly on the same level of if you received instruction in a school. And I think he's... I don't know if even that would have been accepted in 71, but I don't think that whole, I don't think that that belief most people would really hold too strongly today, but they, well, they've, they've really got their claws into you, O'Leary, haven't they? That's what he'd say. Um, but the, the fact is that it, I think now we're talking about the credentials. It's the certificate that's trapping you rather than the actual belief that school's teaching you more stuff. Mm -hmm. I think the, the fact is that most people realize now and probably in 71, depending on how hyperbolic, um, uh, you know, Illich was. But I think, you know, we, we don't need school to learn. We, school can teach you stuff, but you can learn meaningful stuff everywhere. That's pretty, I think that's an accepted notion now, but we are trapped in one of his other myths that we'll come to a little bit later, but essentially it, it's, we're trapped by the product at this point, not by the actual belief that we need school to learn. And the product being the certificate. To be fair, to give, we've been really hard on Illich today. I didn't think we we're going to be crapping on him as much as he craps on schools, but go try and get a job in 2022. A lot of talk out there that people want to see portfolios and self-motivated people. But at the end of the day, for many jobs, you still do need that accreditation because there is the deeper idea. Like if I say, oh, yeah, hire me at your school. You know, I've spent a bunch of time learning how to be a teacher on my own. You know, I, I've self-taught through YouTube and stuff like that. Well, there's no like college teachers board that's going to accept that. Now, I realize all the like interconnected things that Illich would point out here. Well, who says you need those credentials? Why is there the gatekeeper of that board that does the accreditation? And why is it blah, blah, blah? 
But there is still a piece of us that we trust. We are trusting that certificate as a as a promise of a certain level of competence. Whereas if I just say, oh yeah, I've taught myself this thing, you don't necessarily have the benefit of the larger system to ensure that you didn't miss something. Now that's me giving the institutions a bunch of credit. But what I will say is that idea in 2022, I think still does hold that he's pointing to this myth that we do share this. It's like, well, I'm going to trust someone who's gone to Harvard more than someone who says they've studied this for two years in their basement, even if they took the online Harvard courses (laughs) that Harvard offers online. Well, that, that that's still schooling, and that's the thing, right? So, yeah. you know, we'll get to these solutions later, and, you know, you could say, well, it's just the internet. But no, I mean, I'm doing a course right now. He, that's still schooling. It's not. I'm not designing the course. I'm not uh, deciding which parts I study and, see, and seeking out people to help me and mentor and talk. I'm, I'm just signed up for a course, and I'm doing it. It's no different to school. Um, I guess, yeah, that, that we need school to learn. That is, maybe it's always been a suspect idea with people, but the fact is that we will trust that notion above and beyond someone who has not had it. And so, yeah, I think it maybe I will go back on what I said three minutes ago. It still holds true pretty much, although I think, I think what I was trying to get at was, yeah, maybe people didn't really believe the myth, but that's a myth, right? We know it's maybe not true, but we kind of, we also act as if we think it's true, act as if it's true to say like, oh, that person who, who's self-taught and has worked with a bunch of mentors and stuff, you know, the loophole is once those, that person's in the door, they might come in as a, a volunteer or whatever, uh, they might make their way up through the ranks with their with the things they picked up in, in a less conventional style, but still, if you want to be a classroom assistant, you're going to have to still go and do the course, even though you might already be the best classroom assistant in the world, and then step up to teach here and so on. Yeah, it's um. He, he basically says the like learning is the human activity which needs least manipulation. So he's going back again to that Russo that that romantic idea that it's not about instruction. He just need an unhampered kind of setting in which you can participate meaningfully and school is not that and uh yeah i'm with him on that first one then yes the myth that we need school to learn and that's the only place that can give you learning yeah and i think maybe his message could be even more digestible if you just update it to say it's the optimal place for learning yeah that's the view self-learning is suspect and yeah. That's the key. So learning by yourself is is seen as suspect, but uh oh, we're drinking this Kool Aid. We're in. We agree with myth number one. Yes and no, because you think about like you know, again, maybe this is more artistic stuff. You, the dude on YouTube is the greatest guitar you've ever seen, and they're totally self taught. And then that that person then starts giving private lessons and things like that. But maybe the arts is a different approach to things. You don't. You I think know, dentistry is the same. I th- yeah, exactly. However, if you're a dentist and you only have the certificate, you're not going to. You're, you're probably not going to last too long. Uh, so there are some checks and balances there. There's a nuance to it that uh, definitely is worth um, 
several episodes, but we don't have that time. So uh, the second one is another huge one that value can be measured and documented by grades and certificates. The very notion that you can measure growth, personal growth, meaningful growth can be measured in any way, which is like, nope. Yeah, the idea that value can be measured. You and I have tried after many hours to distill down versions of this by talking about the development of rubrics and measuring tools. I think it's true you can create a measuring tool. Oh, I've seen them. Yeah. There's a ruler over there on the table. If he's saying that rulers don't exist, I, I disagree wholeheartedly. Seen them, Ivan. Seen them. I've I've made some. He's wrong. No, but the idea that value can be measured and documented by grades and certificates, I would put like the little asterisk on mine of like, no, no, I, I believe I can create measuring tools and I believe I can measure value and document it with grades and certificates. But even in my own personal understanding, I think the... I, this is where Maastricht would come after the word value. It's just like very specific ranges of subsections of value. But I get his point is he's saying, I think this myth of like objective, all life value that we can sort these things. I think even for myself, it's like, no, no, I can just kind of measure things within a like, what's the word? Not even an Overton window, but like, within this playground of ways yeah, very you can measure specific, things, very specific set of like criteria or a specific of, context. Yeah, exactly. And, and, but the fact he says personal growth, and I don't know whether this is a bit of a bait and switch because school doesn't actually claim ever. Maybe he's hinting that school does say that it can measure personal growth, but I don't really think school is, is, made that claim we can measure personal growth other than on our terms so if you say like the school school is saying we can measure personal growth on our terms sure he wouldn't accept that the terms were he gets to that next yeah. right like why do you get to choose my terms it's like yeah so so all right so you could measure my growth in in multiplication skills sure but is that really personal growth? If you separate that one thing, so what? And in a holistic sense, you can't measure growth. You can't measure personal growth against any curriculum or compared to anyone else's achievement. You know, this is off into very esoteric realms, right? And getting into the idea of postmodernism where the modernists thought there was a truth, but the closer you got to it, the more woolly it got and the more difficult it got to measure until eventually you had to admit that there's probably not one truth and that it's, it's all about how you view any given thing. Um, no one can emulate and follow in anyone else's footsteps. So he's, you know, this gives away that underpinning more than most of the other parts to say basically, you know, Everyone is unique and individual and your own personal growth is your own and you can't be measured. But school's telling you it can. Therefore, you got to be very suspicious of that yeah. approach. And he's kind of saying school does this. I think this is a smooth transition into myth number three. 
the myth of the packaging of values. So you, after hearing that second one, you think might think like, well, how can you pull this off? It's like, well, because curriculums and schools, like schools sell curriculums as a bundle of goods. And it's like a reinforcing thing to ensure that school is a commodity that like, oh, well, you need schools to get this thing and receive our instruction. It's very prescient. And it's, I mean, it's easy to some for, for me to say, like, wow, that must have been so far out there. But I, I think the you know, the thinking in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, they'd already nailed this idea of institutions as products. It's not like he was so far out of what what was being said and thought of by all of those other kind of postmodernist kind of leftist Marxist kind of thinkers of the time. So, but, but this idea, yeah. Oh, okay. So we've got you here. You have to stay here. We've, we've got you to believe that this is the only place you can learn anything. And we've got you to believe that we can measure how you grow. Great. And here are the products that you need to consume and quote unquote buy to have those first two myths um, play out and for you to really be successful in those first two myths. Here you are, your curriculum, it's a bundle of goods. You buying our product. Um, talking to somebody today, they literally said, we are a service industry and Sure, that's one way to think of teaching and learning. And it is definitely true to some degree. But Illich is basically saying like, yes, you are a service industry. You've got your curriculum. You've got your product. The distributed teacher puts the finished product to the consumer pupil. And it looks like any other production line in the modern world. Don't, don't fool yourself that school is any different than making plastic toys on a production line or the Ford uh, motor production in, in motor town that he cites a little bit later. Yeah. And I guess even if you're creating some kind of student centered curriculum at the end of the day, you're still just trapped in this loop of creating some kind of set of goods that will be sold, marketed, distributed, carried out, all these kinds of things. Yeah, somebody else gets to write the curriculum. I think this is, you know, when I was first reading this book, I was teaching in England. I'd been in, I taught English as a second language for about four or five years and then got into primary school teaching. And I'm reading these books, the Dewey's Education and Experience and um, Fury and this one. And, you know, obviously I'm deep into that mainstream context at that point. And the idea that, somebody wrote this curriculum and then we built a system where standardized tests are based on the curriculum and the standardized tests are the things that get you the certificates that you need. And then somebody decides which exam questions are going to be picked from the curriculum. And that's the most important thing in the whole of school, those questions on that exam paper. Um, that's a pretty tight system. Now, that's a negative view. If you view that as the be all and end all of school, it's not only that. I never subscribed to that idea. School is more than that. But at its core, that is a very big focus of mainstream education. 
Yeah, I, I even had perhaps a less drastic version of that. But I remember my very early days teaching in Ontario. You know, there's so much confidence put in the curriculum. You don't question the curriculum. There's the curriculum and you, you, you as the teacher have to do the optimal best job ensuring student success for this. And not trying to be the kid sitting in the back of philosophy class 101, like, well, how can we know anything? But I remember just at first being like, oh, gosh, I've, I've missed something because it really seems everyone has figured out that the things we're doing are the most important things to be doing. And, you know, I think for the first month or two, there was a bit of a wash of me being like, oh, God, this is like everything's counting on this stuff. And I think the more time went on, I just had a little bit more like, really, this this is the most important, like we have to be fascinated and interested and spending all this time on, on these things. I don't know if that quite sits with me. Yeah. Somebody kind of decided this and, and I don't subscribe that it is some conspiracy. They're basically, they're, they're our tradition. If you look at the curriculum document, you go pick out the, let's say science curriculum in, common core american one or the british one it's a collection of odds and ends that we think are important to know mostly knowledge some skills thrown in there skills are harder to actually assess so it's probably going to be more knowledge based and yeah nothing massively harmful in the curriculum itself but what we call the written curriculum the curriculum as a concept is much broader because it's basically everything you do, which he talks about the hidden curriculum. And then there's the concept of the softer curriculum, which is your relationships, your interactions, your environment. But, you know, he, you know, we talk about the written hard curriculum, the, the stuff that we have to translate into the lessons that will prep people for the test. He just takes it down and he uses the brilliant example, my favorite list of all time, which is the Borgia. So we talk a lot about this category, our idea of, you know, not so much on the show, but in our private chats, the category of like conflating different categories of things and curriculum documents do it all the time. There'll be something that's kind of like a a very small piece of factual knowledge about teeth or whatever. And then the next thing on the list will be some huge concept about health. And then there'll be some, then there'll be something that's skills based, like an action and they'll all be kind of conflated together and you read them all. And um, there are some curriculum documents better than others that don't do this as much, but some are a laundry list of anything (laughs) that, that was just thrown in there. Um, and so Borgia uses this example, so, and Illich cites him, and basically it's just a list of things about animals, but none of them are in the same category. So he talks about um, suckling pigs and animals that resemble flies and insane things. And so it's just a list of animal-related concepts that... that they're all animal-ish. They're all in the subject of animals, but but there's no coherence or consistency. And he basically says, that's your curriculum document. <laughs> to the person writing it, it might make some sense, but it's just this Kafka-esque irrational consistency. And the trick of school is to sell it to you. <laughs> Here, this is your curriculum. This is everything you need to know. Uh, don't read it too carefully or too critically. Just trust us, this is it. All right, so we've had the myth of institutionalized values, the myth of the measurement of values, 
the myth of packaging values. The fourth one here that sets up the myth of self-perpetuating progress. What is meant by this, Brennan? I think this is probably only makes sense in, in connection to the first three. And he basically says that uh, we keep getting better year on year. Schools just keep getting better. So education is schooling. And the more hours you do, the better for you. So more, you know, and last year's curriculum, last century, last decades, is, is not as good as the new one. So the new curriculum is always better. The new textbooks are always better. Um, educational reformers are saying that school is just getting greater and greater, better and better. Um, so the dropout, as he calls uh, rather coldly, the dropout uh, is forever reminded of what he's missed. The graduate is made to feel inferior because two, three, five, ten years down the line, that curriculum is now better. Oh, you studied chemistry in, in 2004. Well, I studied chemistry in 2020, so it's better. Ooh. And um, he says Latin America feel guilty because they don't consume enough school. <laughs> and grace is reserved for those who accumulate years in school. He's basically saying year on year school gets better and better, and you should uh, respect that idea and just keep buying the new product. That is part of the myth. That is what we believe, I guess, is improving. Well, what are we saying? We agree that the quality of school is improving. So I guess by default, that means something about the results of school. But I wonder that I, I'm with Illich on this. I think from a teacher's perspective, there's definitely the idea that our instruction is improving all the time all these new ideas for instruction. Are they getting more effective and efficient by any chance, Rob? Well, that's the next thing is ideally they are getting more effective and efficient, but there's almost like a category there where we'd much rather go, oh no, but this new way of teaching is much better. It's better than the old thing. The old thing had these problems. This new one solves some of those things. It's better, always better. But he's also saying it can't be better because you can't measure it. <laughs> so, oh, I know. If you go back to two, he's already said, I've already I've already seen this one, seen through this one. You're saying it's getting better and better. No, it's not. Yeah. No, it's I'm trying to give him anything. credit that this yeah, is a myth that, that we totally hold yeah. on to this. Absolutely. And so I think uh, although four of them can uh, be critiqued, they stand up pretty well to our societal view of schooling in general. Um, so yeah, you, we, you can only learn in school, uh, we, school can measure stuff, school sells you the products you need and those products are getting better and better. So don't use, stay away too long. And, and if you did, you should feel shame and, and respect that the next group. So basically he, he then pulls out the line of it's, it's the introduction, you being introduced to this gambling ritual the ritual of school where you have to throw everything in and just hope that, that uh, you come out the other end winning the game is more important than anything else. It is the game itself that gets into your blood, becomes a habit, becomes a belief. Going hard, but he's making some very good points. Looking at the time, shall we pause there? So this would be part one of our deep dive into Ivan Illich's de-schooling society. The, we've spent a lot of the time today being hard on school and a little bit 
difficult on Illich himself. But one of the really cool parts about his book is he doesn't just complain. He does present some uh, suggestions, opportunities to look into. And I guess that's what we'll get into in part two in our next episode. Yeah, absolutely. He's got one more key idea in the first half of the book, which we can touch on next time as well, which is about the different types of institutions, um, which then actually does set you up for his solution. Um, No spoilers, but it involves learning and webs. It was a fun chat there, Rob, with some some deep and controversial and interesting uh, ideas presented by our, our friend, Father Ivan Illich. Well, we'll see. Let's see if we can get to the next part um, real soon. Lickety split. If you're listening to this and you're enjoying it, maybe the next part's already there. Just click. Probably not, though. <laughs> At the speed we're working. All right. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Brennan.